Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3, and today we are in for a treat. We have the opportunity to talk about the social determinants of health. And obviously, this has become one of those buzz terms or buzzwords that you hear in the industry, and it may have lost its weight as a result of just being so diluted in the discourse. So today we have the opportunity to hear from a colleague of mine, Lanius Gilmore, who is going to break down the social determinants in a way that I think we often miss out on, especially when we start talking about an equity lens. So we are talking about access and we're talking about barriers and we're talking about the solutions that we have to push forward to ensure that people have an equitable opportunity to the social determinants. And so I don't think, Lanius, you know this, but before I came to our current place of employment, I was informed that you were somebody that I needed to know, at least somebody that I could trust in the work and somebody who understood what it means to adopt an equity lens or to advocate for social justice. And so just know that there's folks out there who are rooting for you, who acknowledge and see you and the work that you do. And so with that, Lanius, would you like to introduce yourself to the folks listening, maybe give a brief overview of where you're from, what you're doing? I'll be happy to. Um, Hello, everyone. My name is Lanius Gilmore. I am trained as a public health practitioner, um, and I'm really happy to be here. I'm always excited to talk about racial justice and health. Um, That's what I'm aiming to do. And I've actually been in Michigan and serving uh, Michiganders and my my neighbors and and other uh, citizens of this great state since 2011. And what were you doing before that? I moved here from Oklahoma, and I'll tell a little bit about how I got there, but I moved here from Oklahoma, and during grad school, I was actually working for the Walmart Corporation. I was working at a Sam's Club warehouse, and my responsibility was marketing, uh, membership and marketing for that club, Um, and I actually played around with the idea of actually going to Bentonville, which is headquarters, Bentonville, Arkansas the headquarters of Walmart to actually work for their people group in at what was at that time like diversity initiatives that, you know, it's changed so many things um, or even occupational health um, that did not blossom into, into an opportunity. But that's what I was doing before I got here. Gotcha. I'm always intrigued by individuals career trajectory, right? You know, it's easy to go from position to position but there's typically some type of through line that you can you can trace through. And it sounds like for you, there was always this this people centered approach. Yes. In fact, I led with that. I remember leading with that in my interview because I wanted the managers who obviously I didn't know these people to see what I was bringing from Sam's Club or what I could bring from Sam's Club was transferable. And so I really led with marketing as being an asset and a skill to bring to social marketing, which is, of course, a health communication and health education tool. So yeah, it's definitely all related. So we fast forward a few years. What are you doing now? 
Well, I like to describe my responsibility and my charge as protecting and promoting nutrition and physical activity from the prenatal period through adolescence. So I do spend most of my time either marking up documents, um, of course, lots of meetings just like everyone else, but usually it is all in the service of providing content area expertise and thought partnership around nutrition and physical activity, and of course, around uh, achieving and advancing health and racial equity. I usually am working and having my target population in mind. So I'm usually thinking about Michigan's children, but of course children grow and thrive and succeed in the context of families and communities. So I have to think about um, the parents and the extended family and guardians as well. Let's kick things off by centering equity in the conversation. Naturally, I'm interested in your own personal definition. I'm also interested in how it shows up in your work because what I've come to realize is as individuals say they're interested in adopting an equity lens, there's this disconnect because it's not a perspective that they're particularly used to. And so could you speak to that as well? I can relate to that. I came to a moment, I guess I was in and out of this moment and mindset of really kind of agonizing over exactly that. Like, how do I, I know that I wanted to be a public health practitioner because I was very acutely aware of the difference in life expectancy between Black people and other groups. I actually grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And while the census would have you believe that everyone is white there, it really is a majority Latinx state. Um, the issue is that many of the Latinx people identify as white and therefore respond to their census in that way. I bring that up because when I was growing up, I was the only person who had been to multiple funerals or missed multiple funerals because aunties and cousins and people who were really far too young uh, were dying. We were losing our family members and our friends. But I also noticed that my white and Latinx classmates were not losing anyone, or if they did, it would be their grandmothers. Um, and so I've, I've, been, I've always been acutely aware, even if I couldn't articulate what was going on, um, the shortened life expectancy uh, that tends to happen in Black communities and in Black families. And I, I arrived here to do this work and I was really agonizing and trying to, I thought it would be easier to figure out how to make change in Enable, in order to address health disparities. At the time, that was what my language, all, the, all that my language contained was an understanding around health disparities. So like literally the statistical differences that you could see, I, I wasn't really too articulate about health equity, et cetera. And it was really in 2015 when I was able to participate in a three-year fellowship focused on equity, specifically focused on leading for racial equity and identifying one's own realm of influence and figuring out something that we can do within our own power because we always we all have some if we, even if we don't have the power we wish we had 
And so I took some time really trying to figure that out. And so it, it, it does take time. I'm not saying it takes three years. I'm not even saying it takes a fellowship. But for me, it did take some time for me to get my head wrapped around it. And so now when I talk about what equity means to me, the way I articulate it is that I believe that we can eliminate the power in race, ethnicity, home language, place or zip code, class, socioeconomic status, we can eliminate the power in those things to determine health and well-being. And so that's really what, how I articulate equity in my goal and my passion. You bring up a few really important points there. And I think one of the things that resonates most with me is something that I touched on in an earlier episode about the fact that you never stop learning. There is no um, certificate that says you're done, that you've got it all. And I know for myself, when I look at people that I admire in the work, people who have been doing this a long time, I always get this feeling like they've always had it this way. And it's difficult for me to see that it's not necessarily that way that they continue to learn, they continue to read, and they continue to experience. I mean, we don't talk enough about getting it wrong, but I know even for myself, I've made mistakes along the way that have been helpful for me in helping me to articulate what equity is, to articulate the role of social justice. And so I think I just want to drive home here that no one has it all, all the time, all together. Yes, and I, I thought that. I, people come to mind immediately too. I'm not going to call them out, but people come to mind immediately because there were actual human beings who, who I've been in rooms with now, and I know better now, but who I thought, oh my goodness, I could never. I, I definitely had that thought, um, and I did soon learn, and I do credit faculty for that fellowship I was in uh, with a lot of this. I definitely did learn very quickly that this is about continuous learning. We, we do not arrive. I also credit another instructor, the name is escaping me, but another workshop that I attended. And that workshop was the first place I saw someone challenge the idea of cultural competency because competency does indeed have, it, it isn't understood to have an endpoint, something you achieve uh, but you cannot achieve cultural responsiveness. You cannot achieve a spirit and a passion and a commitment to inclusion. You just can't do that. And she introduced that term of cultural responsiveness and other continuum type terms. And so, yeah, I, I learned very quickly that this is there are things you can achieve, but you never stop learning. So let's get to the topic, right? I was really interested in having you on the show because of your perspective when it comes to the social determinants of health, because the research tells us it's less about healthcare, it's more about one's environment and the behaviors within the environment. And so could you help to shape the discussion for us when it comes to children's nutrition and children's health, how does social determinants of health play a factor and how do you frame that discussion? Well, first, I would like to start with how we frame and talk about social determinants. 
I'm not sure how we got here, but we've arrived at a place where social determinants are almost framed as their own kind of bizarre set of stereotypes. And of course, stereotypes are because, you, the, because of the way the United States, the society here developed, stereotypes are often racialized or often target uh, minoritized groups, uh, Black and Indigenous people to be specific. And I'm not sure how we got here, but the way that I like to frame the social determinants of health is actually pretty simple. And the first place I presented this was actually in front of a workshop full of Head Start directors and educators. And it is to say that the social determinants of health form our context for both health and well-being. So when I'm talking to childcare providers, I'm also talking about educational success and attainment. So I do try to tag on health and well-being together. And so when you think about what the context is, we all have context. And so then it then the next challenge I felt was, well, how do we shift the mindset and this view of social determinants so that it no longer attaches itself in a weird way to just minoritized groups. And where I arrived is to articulate social determinants of health as assets. So safe and affordable housing is an asset. Safe places for recreation and for active play outdoors, that is an asset. Food security asset. And so once you once we all get clear that social determinants are something that we all need to have health, to have well-being, then the question is, okay, well then why does it come up in our conversations? What is the thing that is wrong that is off kilter? And the answer to that is also rooted in the racist past and the racist policies that exist in this country. And that is that the access to social determinants of health is unequal. There are injustices in the distribution of the benefits of society. And so the action that we need to be taking is increasing access to the social determinants of health for people from whom it's been withheld. It is making changes in how we distribute the benefits of society to people who need it most, not equally, but to people who need it most. That's what justice is. Uh, I hear you not saying it, but I, I know I can introduce it into this space. So let's talk about racism and its role in the social determinants of health, in childhood nutrition, physical activity. You know, how does racism, and I imagine we're talking institutional or structural here, show up? Well, when I say that uh, the benefits of society have been une unevenly distributed and, and I point to minoritized groups that I am referring, I'm gesturing at racism. That's one manifestation of racism. I often select or kind of pick, point out a definition for racism based on the context. And lately, uh, a specific definition by a specific scholar has really been resonating with me. And I think part of it is because we now have a set of directives from the governor of Michigan. I think that's the reason for that. And this recent and now becoming common 
diagnosis that racism is a public health crisis. And so the definition I have been using is that racism is the state-sanctioned production and exploitation of group, of group differentiated vulnerabilities to premature death. That definition is attributed to scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is probably best known as a prison abolitionist, but what's really cool is that she is trained in as a geographer. And she chose geography because she's interested in humans and their places. I really find that particular definition really important because it lays out the structural, it makes us understand that what makes it structural is state sanction. You could interchange other words. You could say federal sanction, you could say government sanction, but the point is that rather than being built to resist oppression, our systems are built to reinforce it. And the policies and the laws that we write, unless we are very, very careful, automatically reinforce the effects of race or racism and its effects. So I tend to call out racism first, just because that's the focus of most of my research and most of my practice. But I'm also curious as to oppression and how that shows up and really the relationship between nutrition, healthy eating, and some of the oppressive practices and policies that we've seen that have been perpetuated, not just historically, but also currently. Um, I would like to, uh, to quote another Black woman fave here and say that when I think of Ruth Wilson Gilmore and use her frame for racism, I also think of Nicole Hannah-Jones, and she often points out correctly that racial residential segregation can really explain just about any race-based oppression or inequity. And the way that that relates to my work is when we think about healthy food and access, we're really talking about, because of, again, the way our benefits of society are distributed, they are also distributed based on a capitalist system. And so therefore, when we talk about healthy food, we're also talking about healthy retail. We're primarily talking about healthy retail and all the forms it might take. So the way that that relates to residential segregation and residential segregation is a, was a racist policy and continues to be a structural racist outcome in the United States is that commercial and industrial property is zoned often based on these legacy racial, racially established rules around where people could live. And so when you think about zoning, the disinvestment in certain communities continues to happen because we have an absence of policies to actually address and repair the redlining, the white flight, the discriminatory lending practices. And so you couple that again with the zoning and you end up getting fast food where a small corner store with fresh produce might exist. You get a liquor store instead of a fresh fruit, fresh food prepared deli counter, for example. 
So that's actually how it relates to healthy eating. And you can, we can go on. How does uh, racial segregation, racial residential segregation dictate where people can recreate or play outside? The answer is unsafe neighborhoods, the same disinvestment that leads to zoning laws that disadvantage people have also led to all kinds of economies that are informal. That's how I like to frame it. It leads to anymore playing outside, being outside. And in Michigan, when those months are so short, they're the fewest out of the year. It is a shame that people have been disenchanted with the outdoors because of the way that racist policy has disadvantaged them. On equity matters, we tend to focus heavily on the solutions, right? What are the strategies for creating equity in the work that you're doing? And so I would imagine that collaboration comes up quite often, especially if we're talking about working across sectors, working across different social domains. Could you describe some of the strategies that you have found to be most successful? Yeah, I'm, I, that's interesting that you went in the direction of collaborations because that's really important. And I would get right down to making it even more people-centered people because collaboration is correct, but collaboration is so institutional, if you will. What we really need to acknowledge is that we, will, we are going to need to get, acknowledge first that we have, that our systems, specifically state government, has caused injury um, and has caused rifts and there's a lack of trust. And when people don't trust other people, the people in power are responsible for repairing that. And so what I acknowledge, and I confess that I haven't had as many opportunities as I would like, I've recognized that our most neglected public health practice is formative research. Formative research are, is including activities such as focus groups to get people together to perhaps react to a environmental disaster and let them talk it through and so we can understand how that affected them and we can build our response, build our interventions based on those, on those stories. Formative research would also allow us to build and then process, build systems for feedback from patients, for example, and then process that feedback. Um, taking the time between evaluation, data collection, and starting up an, an intervention or even funding something and stopping and trying to actually marry the evidence and the expertise that we bring from, in our case, state government with the context expertise of the communities. That we have to get there so we can co-create solutions with people. To answer your question as to what I have been involved in, I actually have been honored to be present. I haven't been able to do them all. Uh, but one of the other hats that I wear is as a board member for the Michigan Breastfeeding Network. The Michigan Breastfeeding Network was called out 
in 2018 for making statements about racial equity, but not, not actually embodying a commitment to racial equity or justice. Right after that, I was, or kind of contemporary with that, I was invited to join the board. But right after that, I joined. One of the commitments that we made was to form, at that time, what we articulated as an advisory council, but at any rate, to gather specifically Black families, Black parents, breastfeeding parents, birthing parents, parents with brand new babies, and advocates and other stakeholders. We definitely knew the room was going to be full of breastfeeding and birth workers, such as doulas and board certified lactation consultants. We knew that. And I have had the honor of joining some of these discussion groups and it has been absolutely powerful. We have had the opportunity to take action because it was in the realm of influence and within our power as the network to do that. But for the most part, we are taking the time to listen. I realize I'm telling a story from the perspective of a nonprofit organization. And I'm very clear on the difference between the organizations, but I'm also very clear that one of the things that makes government continue to inflict injury and neglect repair and implement programs but not get outcomes is again this neglect of doing formative research of understanding what people need from their perspective and putting our resources toward that what a novel idea asking people what they need and then giving it to them it sounds so simple and yet we tend to miss it over and over and over again I often think about leaders and the position that they have within organizations and kind of the expectations that come with that. And for me personally, I always think about the relationship between one's values that they display and the ones that they articulate behind closed doors. And when there's a disconnect between those two, it's very difficult for me to continue working uh, with them. I've found that in professional and personal settings. And so I want to ask you about the challenges that come with doing equity work, because there has to be a value system in place. And it's not just, as I described, the external values or what you display to others, but it's also about your own values. So how do you rely on your value system as you're doing the work? I would like to start with the question of values, core values, and even those sincerely held. And the reason I want to start there is because I believe that we tend to apply the wrong or ill-fitting is how I'll say it. We, we, we want to apply ill-fitting equity strategies in institutions. What I mean by that is, I do not believe 
that institutions, governments, organizations are the place for racial reconciliation strategies. The reason why I do not believe that is that organizations and institutions and governments, government agencies are always in flux in terms of who the players are in the place. Yes, you have people who will arrive tomorrow that might stay for decades should, should this earth stay on its axis. axis. And we have people who, are, who have been at the state for 20, 30, maybe even 40 years, I'm not sure. Those are all, that's all true, but it's also true that people resign every day. People are hired every day. People transfer every single day. People go on leave, both extended and short. And so this idea that we can appeal to people's core values, expecting maybe some shift or expecting people to act more in line with their stated values or, sincere, or, or otherwise sincerely held values, I think is a misuse of resources. I also think that that kind of an approach puts all of our resources and our, all of our eggs in one basket and that basket is on the detractors. We put all of our resources into training and dialoguing and doing all this stuff with the detractors. And while, just like with any other workplace goal, any other workplace goal, you could just name anyone, any other workplace goal, we always understand, we somehow understand that everybody has to be nourished. The people who are experts, the people who are learning, the managers, the leaders, et cetera. Everybody's got to have their nourishment. Doesn't mean that the organization meets it, but we seem to understand that with other goals. But somehow with equity and racial justice, we put all of our resources into the detractors and training again and dialoguing and all of that. And I think that that is a miss. I think that what we end up doing is by concentrating on the detractors and worrying about implicit bias in an outsized way, I'm not saying it's not important at all, and worrying about white privilege, what we end up doing is missing the opportunity to activate early, early adopters, to activate people who are newly on fire, especially white people who are newly on fire. And we certainly dehydrate, if you will, those of us that are in it that this is what we do, this is who we are. No matter what agency I'm in, and I believe this is true for you too, James, I believe that what we are aiming for racial justice, no matter where you might find us, but we're getting starved and dehydrated as well because all of the resources are being concentrated on the detractors. I think that's a miss. I think racial reconciliation exists in community. I think it has its place. I just don't think it belongs in institutions. What I've been, what I have moved to saying, one of my ways of framing this anyway, is to think about OSHA. No one asks you if you are, let's say a chemical handler of some kind, I can't think of a occupation right now. No one asks you how you feel about the MSDS sheets 
what happens is they tell you how you need to handle these chemicals. They tell you how you need to protect yourself, how you need to protect, let's say, the structure, the storage structure, how you need to protect others. They tell you it doesn't matter how you feel. You're expected to understand that and do that. I want to work and develop an institution in which policy is set according to our stated core values around racial justice. I might dream and say anti-racist policy. Put that in place and everything else should be used to implement that policy. What we have instead often is the use of training and other mechanisms to try to convince people that anti-racist policy is the right move. And I think that we have it backwards. And I don't disagree. I do want to segue a little bit because I was sitting in an interview today where we asked about the social determinants of health and what role it plays and your understanding of it. And I didn't particularly care for the question, but I cared even less for the answers that I heard because it became apparent to me across a few different interviewees that there's this notion that race happens to be a social determinant of health. Now, I can refer back to an earlier episode where a guest mentioned how racism is a risk factor. But do you mind debunking the myth that comes with race being a social determinant? And also, when I think about social determinants, I tend to use the qualifiers. It's about safe and stable housing. It's about quality education is access to reliable transportation. I don't see how race fits in that. So could you tell us how someone may come to that conclusion and why it's wrong? There's a couple of reasons why that happens. So one of them is the very common, though rarely articulated clearly assumption that black people are to blame for their own oppression. So that, let's just start there. That's not, a, that's not a, a belief or an assumption that anyone has to state explicitly for it to be for them to be carrying it around. That's probably the root of it, really. I would also say that the other piece is, or maybe they're related, because the assumption that people make is that if you wanted to do better, you would. So because everything is about personal responsibility and Black people must have poor, um, eating habits and that and it is absent of their communities and so therefore it's not racism it must be race so I think that that's the other piece I have I just so happened to review the healthy people 2030 and I'm struck again by why there are no indicators reducing known disparities across the country so that I have to deal with. But I moseyed over to the Social Determinants of Health page because I was using the Healthy People 2020 quite a bit because actually I found it to be the best way, the, the most clear articulation of Social Determinants of Health as assets. What I did find there, they changed it a little bit and it, it still, it's still serviceable. But what I did find there is that they have racism as a social determinants of health. I can deal with that. I think 
I would rather it not be on the list, but I can certainly deal with that better than putting race. And I think that when, when people say race is a social determinant, they are most definitely erasing our stories and our experiences of racism and whether we believe it's conscious, unconscious, explicit, implicit, but they are, anyone who says that has decided that Black people's current status, first of all, they've decided it's monolithic, and then they have decided that um, anyone with poor health status, unsafe neighborhoods, et cetera, it is their fault. Something that I've gotten into the habit of doing with presentations now is I will always include further reading and additional resources for people who want to learn more, who want to do more. Are there any articles that come to mind for you when you think about your own journey and how far you've come in the equity space that you could recommend to others? I would. I actually would love to do that. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity um, very, very much. I, I appreciate, I'm honored still that I was invited. And I would actually like to share, I might share more than this one thing, but I do want to share one, one resource in particular that I consult often and that when I found it, it just felt like sometimes you find a resource or someone says something to you and it literally feels like cool air over across your face, like the just the thing that I needed. Um, but a professor put out a article or blog, I can't remember which, and she was reacting to a recent policy or move by her university to do DEI different and hire a dean and or might have been a, a, a vice president around uh, DEI. And what she proceeded to do is to create a list where she contrasts diversity with equity and inclusion with justice. And I just find it to be so helpful in sometimes trying to work my way through something I need to respond to that's kind of sitting and simmering or to prepare for a meeting that I know I'm going into a group that has a habit of conflating all of those terms and their meanings as if they're all the same. And one, I'll, I will give one particular contrast that she gives and it is related to inclusion. So in comparing inclusion, in comparing inclusion with justice. And she points out that inclusion asks, was everybody able to contribute? Justice challenges us, though, to think about whose voice was either held back of their own volition or silenced. And the way I read that is while everyone else's voice was filling the room. There's just a huge difference between what we think sometimes that we're trying to accomplish by using these terms as much as we do. Um, and I found her piece to be really helpful in trying to, to nail it down and identify what diversity accomplishes versus what equity accomplishes and design and select strategies to that point. 
and her name is Dafina Lazarus Stewart. So the next thing I must ask, are there any texts that you would recommend, any books that you found to be helpful as you're doing the work? But one, one text that I have found very helpful to me is Racism Without Racists. It is, I am forgetting the author's name, uh, but it is a book that explores results and responses from interviews. It actually includes interviews from Southeast Michigan, which is really cool. It's not the only place, but they did include interviews from Southeast Michigan and talking through experiences with racism, the subtle types of interpersonal stuff, but also the racist effects, again, on how the benefits of society are distributed. And they ask people what they think. And, and you know, he draws conclusions about how this is the way, A is the way people think and B is the way it really is and toward the end he's getting to how maybe a public health practitioner or early childhood decision maker might use that for messaging might use the way people frame racism which they usually frame it interpersonally and the way that you can shift them over to understanding the structural and institutional nature well audience it's been great i mean i mentioned this before just being able to share the space with you and the way that you're received and recommended, I'm just appreciative that there are folks like you in these spaces who get it and who are trying to make the best decisions for our communities and making sure that people have the access to the things that they need to. And also acknowledging that we're not there yet. I know we often get in these, if it's not complacent, it's just, we've, we've met victory but we, we really haven't. There's, there's so much more work to do and I appreciate you for holding us accountable to that. Well, I, again, am very honored. I'm also very specifically honored that after it was suggested to you that we have a conversation that you decided to have me join you and with you doing something that has your name on it, that's yours, that you developed uh, from scratch. I'm, I'm very honored, just very specifically for this invitation for that reason. Thank you. And I would just like to thank Lanius again for joining us on Equity Matters Podcast. As you know, this has become a labor of love. It's something that I look forward to every week, not just the episodes coming out, but the process and getting it ready. I mean, creating the content that support whatever the topic is for that week. If you're missing it, please head over to Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram. I think we're doing a great job of building community. I think we share a lot of really great resources and it's just a great way to stay informed, not just with the podcast, but also with the highlights of what the people who have appeared on the podcast are doing. It's been great seeing some of the milestones that they've met in their life. I think I can just give a quick shout out to the now Dr. TJ McRae that you heard on the Closing the Digital Divide episode. It's just refreshing and so rewarding to be a part of this movement. I'm grateful for the people who have entrusted in me to help craft the conversation and I'm looking forward to many more. And so with that, I hope that you all are doing well. Please take care of yourselves as we prepare for this new transition that will be taking place in the coming months. 
And as always, equity matters.